EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is May 3rd, and I talk to Lukas Sokalis, a professor at the University of Athens, a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges and King's College in London, and a visiting professor at Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. I'm Lucas Soukalis. I'm uh, Greek. I live in Greece, although I spent a great deal of my time traveling and teaching also in other parts of Europe. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Athens and a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges, King's College London. And this semester I'm a visiting professor at Harvard, teaching at the Kennedy School. Great. So what do you think, what kind of future is currently emerging in the European Union, given all the social, political and economic transformation that the European Union currently undergoes and also the challenges mm-hmm. it faces? Well, Europe, as we all know, has been facing multiple crises and the effect is cumulative. It's been a, It was a political crisis in uh, the first decade of the 21st century when the European constitution was rejected in France and the Netherlands. That was a very big political crisis. As soon as, well, just about when Europe was going to recover, it was hit by the bursting of the big bubble, the international financial bubble, which transformed itself into an existential crisis of the euro and European integration, the biggest crisis until then. And now Europe is faced with a refugee crisis. So all those together have had an effect on Europe. The effect has been a remarkable change in the mood. I mean, if you go back a bit more than 10 years ago, the beginning of the 21st century, Europe was in a state of euphoria because Europeans were convinced, at least their political leaders were convinced, that they were about to transform radically the economic and political map of Europe through a constitution, through a common currency, and through big bank enlargement. And now there is a mood of doom and gloom. And the good news is that despite all those crises, Europe is still in one piece. So I suppose the conclusion to draw is that the collective instinct of survival is strong. So when, until now, when Europe reaches the edge of the precipice, there is a reflex, and we do the minimum and at the very last minute to keep it going. The bad news is that the price we've paid in recent years is very big in economic and political terms. As I said in the beginning, the effect is cumulative. So, you know, the capacity of the European system to resist crisis is being sapped and weakened. And the question is, what do you do from now on? Uh, I personally think that there are things that need to be done, but of course whether they will be done is a totally different matter. Uh, you, I mean, Europe is faced with a number of huge challenges. Is faced, first of all, with the challenge of having 
essentially a what I consider to be a still dysfunctional monetary union. There have been many changes, but I think the monetary union is still dysfunctional. It is neither effective nor legitimate, the governance of the Eurozone. And that has economic and political effects. Europe is faced with also with the challenge of restoring growth, and not only any kind of growth, but inclusive growth, because inequalities have been growing within our countries. It's faced with the challenge of reconciling markets with democracy, which is a huge one. Nobody else has done it. I mean, at the, beyond the national level, right? Because what you need to reconcile today is global markets and national democracies. Europe has, is ahead of anybody else in trying to do that, but not successful enough. It is faced with the challenge of an imploding neighborhood, both to the east to the, and to the south. And this is, I mean, huge. Uh, you might say, and I think it's fair to say that, that Europe is unlucky because, I mean, it's one thing to be faced with an internal problem. It's one thing to be faced with a crisis because of the Eurozone. But it's a totally different thing also to be faced with a neighborhood around you that is collapsing. And the collapse of the neighborhood is not essentially the fault of the Europeans. I mean, the Europeans, you might accuse them of not doing enough or perhaps having committed mistakes. But what is happening in the Arab world, and not only in the Arab world, and also in the shared neighborhood with Russia, is not really mainly the fault of Europeans. So trying to face all those challenges at the same time is a huge task. Whether the Europeans rise to that challenge remains to be seen. Coming from what you just said, um, basically you talked about the monetary union and, uh, and two problems, effectiveness and problem of legitimacy. Can you please break that down <laughs> so that listeners would understand what basically this is about? Yeah. Well, Europe uh, decided, all European political leaders decided back in the early 1990s to have a common currency, but they were apparently not ready to give that common currency the appropriate institutions, nor were they ready, willing, or whatever, to build the necessary political base on which monetary union should rest. So there is a clear contradiction between a currency, uh, of a currency without a state. We haven't had that any time in history. Europe again was unlucky in the following sense, that the benign explanation or approach to that would be that Europeans always start with something which is incomplete, and it is always work in progress. So you build it along as you go on. The trouble is, what was the bad luck? The bad luck was that uh, 10 years after they set up the whole thing, uh, they were faced with the mother of all financial crises. So the big test, the first big test for the euro, came with uh, an almost financial meltdown. So they've done a number of things to change, but still, Europe does not have the appropriate institutions to manage a common currency. And I, what I mean by that is that to manage a common currency, you need a small executive, 
with clearly defined powers, even narrowly defined. You know, you don't, you're not going to be the United States of Europe, but you need an economic executive that has a small budget, that has some discretionary power to manage macroeconomic policy. And Europe does not have that as yet. So the governance of it is not effective, nor is it legitimate, because there are very important decisions taken at the Eurogroup level, which affect the lives of ordinary citizens, and they're not legitimacy enough for that, because if you say that all those representatives in the Eurogroup are democratically elected in their own countries, this is true. But there's no collective legitimacy, because there are points, especially since there have been very painful adjustment programs for debtor countries, parliaments of creditor countries had more say over the macroeconomic adjustment of the debtor country than the parliament of the debtor country itself. Or to put it very bluntly and simply, the German parliament had more say as to what would be the program in Greece or Portugal than the Greeks or the Portuguese parliamentarians. And that cannot last for very long. I mean, this is an unsustainable situation. Now, you might say again that, uh, you know, when you are on the verge of bankruptcy, you have lost sovereignty, which may be a cynical way to approach things. But as far as Europe is concerned, as a collective enterprise, this is not something that can be sustained for very long. So that's what I mean by the Euro governance being neither effective nor legit. So looking ahead and coming back to your idea of, uh, that there is a need for an institution, a small institution that will uh, kind of be in charge of macroeconomic policies, don't you think that these questions are somehow addressed by the European Central Bank and the European Commission? Or, or the distribution of powers in dealing with this policy isn't, isn't necessarily effective and in, uh, a small new institution is needed and how do you, how do you see, the, what's your vision of that institution? What kind of institution that's going to be? Yeah. Well, the most important and effective institution in the managing of the Euro crisis has been the European Central Bank, undoubtedly. It's been the saviour of last resort of the euro. And it has done, given the straitjacket which Maastricht Treaty had prepared for the European Central Bank, it has done a pretty remarkable job. It's been late in its response for political reasons, so both in terms of uh, active involvement in the secondary markets or quantitative easing and so on, it's been slow compared to what the Fed did before, what the Bank of Japan did, the Bank of England did, and so on. But it has done, given the political constraints, a remarkable job. But the ECB is run by technocrats who are not politically accountable. The question is, what kind of a political institution that is democratically accountable Europe has? And it doesn't have. The only thing that it has is the Eurogroup. But the Eurogroup is not exactly that. And the Eurogroup also has no budget. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you need, you know, the budget of the order of the United States, but you need a budget of anything like 3-4% of GDP that has automatic stabilizers. And that also provides the governance with discretionary power. The only thing we try, we pretend now, that we're going to run the euro on the basis, on the one hand, an active ECB, and on the other hand, rules 
that constrain national behavior. Well, that is not good enough because if you have only rules that constrain national behavior, you pretend that the only thing that counts is that each country has its own housing order. There's the famous now phrase used, the Ohio syndrome, which means the own housing order syndrome. But Eurozone is very big. So the macroeconomic policy stance of the Eurozone as a whole makes a hell of a difference. Now, who is in charge of that? Is it just Mr. Schäuble or nobody? And that is a key political question which has to be addressed one day or the other, and I hope sooner rather than later. Again, coming what you said about that there are things that could be done about the challenges and crises the European Union faces, besides what you already have talked about, are there anything, is there anything else the European Union needs to, need to, to do to kind of move forward? Well, uh, if I were to summarize, I would say, and many of those things are in fact in my new book that is coming out in June this year entitled in Defense of Europe, which is a rather ambitious title, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Europe needs to face the problem of the governance of the Eurozone, which is both economic governance and political governance. It has to address the problem of growth, because all projections suggest that European economies will remain half stagnant for several years, and projections for growth are very small. I don't think that Europe can be kept in one piece if we continue with the present slow, fragile and uneven growth we have had after a very deep and long recession, remember, and also very unevenly distributed. Uh, Europe needs to face the political challenge that I talked about, which is not easy. For all those things you need a treaty revision. But I believe that you can only face a treaty revision on different terms from the ones you have tried before. Namely, you need a treaty revision, but only on the assumption that no country can stop all the others from going ahead. Which means, in other words, that you need a majority decision for any treaty revision to be ratified, and the minority faces two options. They either adjust, or walk out, or you offer them differentiated arrangements. Okay, So for me, the model in that respect would be the Fiscal Compact Treaty, which is precisely what it did. Uh, under the guidance and the strong pressure and leadership of the Germans. Uh, and that perhaps is the way to approach treaty revisions in the future. But the other thing when we talk about neighborhood, and I'm not suggesting there's an easy solution. I mean, it's not obvious how Europe is going to stabilize its collapsing neighborhood. But Europe is faced with another huge challenge, which has been there for decades. And this is, can Europe continue forever as a soft power under the security umbrella of the United States? It seems, given the change in the world around, it cannot. Can it rise to that challenge? No idea. And that is perhaps the most difficult one. That is perhaps the most difficult one. If we talk about a European common approach, it will have to be led by the bigger countries. It will be largely intergovernmental. 
But that's the challenge that Europeans are faced with. What are they going to do with Syria? What are they going to do with Ukraine? What are they going to do with Turkey? These are not simple questions. And to pretend, I mean, the Americans are not going to solve those problems. Uh, and the Europeans on their own have very small influence and capacity to change things around them. Collectively, I'm not suggesting that they're going to have a revolution in the world, but at least they have some capacity to influence developments in their neighborhood. And short of that, I think, I mean, Europe is in deep trouble. Coming from that, how do you see the future of integration in terms of security and defense policy? How do you, I mean, uh, more, more precisely, uh, would it be common troops? How you see it? And given also the NATO factor, how do you, how do you see that? Well, first of all, we've seen that on Ukraine, on Syria, there's been attempts, relations with Russia, the big question. Mm -hmm. Europeans have tried to coordinate, not with dramatic success, because very often the unit is so fragile that they can only agree the very minimum, and they do not even test that much. Uh, so you need to go further. But let's say on Ukraine, it is basically the Germans and the French that have tried to play a mediating role. With Syria, it's more or less the same thing. It is, I think, sad that the only other country that can actually play some role, namely the UK, has so far decided to be absent as if affairs of the continent are of no concern to the British, which is a huge mistake. I mean, they're self-marginalizing. Uh, so I think that you need gradually to develop and strengthen your common positions. You may slowly start deciding something on common defense, although you have to decide your relationship and your division of labor with NATO. But Europeans need to play a more active role within NATO for the defense of the European continent. But I insist that anything on foreign policy and defense will be much more intergovernmental than the things in economics. And if it is more in the governmental, then it is going to be the big powers that clearly lead. Now, in Europe, as you know, until today, the expression I use is that we have essentially two carnivores and all the others are vegetarians or do not count. I mean, it's the French and the British who are the carnivores and the rest are vegetarians with the Germans in between, not knowing whether they're going to start eating meat or not and the others not sure whether they want them to eat meat either. Uh, so it is those three countries essentially, with on occasions others playing a role, because of the, most of the others have limited defense capabilities and also very limited geographical focus. They are only interested in their immediate neighborhood. Okay. So it is only those two or three that have a more global approach to international affairs. So that's how I see it. But again, I always believed that foreign policy would be the last thing ever, if ever, to be thrown into the melting pot. Now somehow the world around Europe is forcing Europe perhaps to accelerate. 
Because you know, the rest of the world is not waiting for Europeans to decide whether they want to have something in common or not. Probably my last question about uh, the citizens of European Union and their participation in decision-making processes at the European level. We see it's not... I mean, how do you see it and do, how do you see the improvement of their participation level? Well, uh, we know that support for European institutions has declined significantly in recent years because Europeans are unhappy with what's going on. There's no doubt about it. And uh, interestingly enough, support for the euro remains relatively strong. And my explanation, at least, is that support for the euro is not because of love, it's because of fear. You know, you're f afraid of the alternative. You're not so much in love with what is happening. Uh, and that political participation or political acceptance of European integration and political involvement is, as I said before, a very difficult thing. But I do not buy the argument that uh, you know we cannot have any further integration because there's no appetite for it. Because number one answer to your question is it's not just a question of further transfers of power. My answer to that is, it is what kind of Europe we're talking about, not whether we want more or less. Okay? And number two, appetite. That's something I say in my book, is that appetite, as far as I'm concerned, depends on what is on the menu. You know, uh, and, for example, are you surprised that a significant section of our population throughout Europe is turning against Europe? Who are those people? They're usually the most vulnerable members of society, the ones who feel they are losing out from the big economic transformation, which has to do not only with Europe, but has to do with globalization, with technological revolution, and so on. They are the losers. And now, increasingly, they identify Europe with that change. So if Europe appears only as the liberalizer and the policeman of the straight jacket in fiscal policy, why should they be in favor of Europe? They're not mad. So are we shocked that there is growing Euroscepticism, especially within those groups? So you have to address the problem. I mean, it's one thing to denounce demagogues, and I'm the first one to denounce demagogues. But before denouncing demagogues or populists, you first have to find out why there is so much fertile ground for demagogues. And you have to deal with the problem instead of dealing with the core, with the effect. So Europe, yes, has Euroscepticism. Yes, it has populism. Populism of the right wing in the north and populism of the left wing in the south. Interesting division. But those populists have a reason that they are there. So let's address the, the causes.
You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.